also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Love Island is a bunch of British people <laughs> on an island, and it's different from the usual island. They're on a new, sunnier island, um, and it starts off... Ibiza. It's called Ibiza. <laughs> They're actually it's where, on... It's where they invented dancing. I'm, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid it's on Mallorca, where they invented um, puking into a gutter, uh, but then insisting it is still the best night of your life. It's, it's Mallorca. It's in Spain, too? Mallorca is where they invented um, going to get a full English breakfast at four in the morning in Spain. Oh, man. Um, yeah, it's, it's where they invented having beans on toast in 40 degree weather. But no, uh, Love Island is there's a villa, right? And in the villa, they have scoured Britain for its like basically hottest people. The most sort of um, the, the, all tan <laughs> lip filler. Uh, all this, just it's uh, some some extreme. Some just I'm like yeah. I've been imagining, like a uh, like you know how British studio like recording studio technicians used to dress like like basically lab coat, like uh-huh. sterile gloves. <laughs> imagine like an army of those people with some like arcane detecting technology, calipers. like just calipers wandering through the moors, like the mm-hmm. back streets of Manchester, <laughs> hiding under a bridge, like. <laughs> just identifying just <laughs> I- identifying Britain's like hottest lads and um ab- and most birds. Yeah, the the finest birds and the fittest lads. Um and then they take uh they take an equally like um, um gender balanced uh group of I think tw- I think I think 10 of them to start, they introduce two more. Um and they put them into a villa and they're mic'd up the whole time filmed all the time every day producers are kind of sort of in constant contact with them a little bit but always off screen and the goal is basically to last the entire time in the villa and like to not tap out basically well you can you can technically tap out no one does i don't think anyone ever had maybe like one person has um but no because there are various ways you can get removed from the villa and you don't want that um because you win the large, the smallest large amount of money that a British game show will give out, which is f- fifty to a hundred thousand pounds. Uh, it's the, and that's the it's the big it is the hottest show in Britain. Everybody watches it. It's all over everywhere. It is inescapable. Is Every- anybody angry that this show has basically exfiltrated all of the hot people out of Britain? Yeah, all tw- all twenty four of them over the course of the show get get removed from Britain, and it's left as a country of just absolute mingers. Um, well, I mean, I was going to marry Gerald, but he's on Mallorca. <laughs> uh, so basically, right is you start, and then you're you're there, and you you couple up immediately, and the, you have to always be in a couple. And if you're ever left as the odd person out when recouplings occur, you're off the island. Also, sometimes at semi-random intervals, the audience can vote a couple off the island. So you're not always safe if you're in a couple. Okay. Um, so you go Good there and like you're you have no contact with the outside world at all. Nothing. You can't bring any books. You can't bring any movies. You can't bring anything. You can barely even bring like clothes with writing on them. You really have to be there 
spending 24 hours a day with each other talking to each other about each other and nothing else it sounds and, like a M- mk ultra project like <laughs> it's <yeah>. fucking horrible <laughs> did they know did they know that it didn't come home i don't think they do i don't think they know um <laughs> yeah you and cameron designed love island in order to deprogram communists but no, so, we are depatterning the hottest people in britain <laughs> so we start with this the, the 12 fittest people in britain but then things get really hectic and that's where we are right now which is like there's a mid-game switch em up called okay. casa amor <laughs> So is that where they bring in the uh, like the 10 most hideous people in Brazil? (laughs) (laughs) What? Who still win? Um, No, uh, Casa basically it's they they take the top 24 hottest people in Britain and they start off with 12 of them. And then they split up the boys and the girls. Six. The boys go to Casa Amor. The girls stay in the main villa. And then waiting for the boys at Casa Amor is six. And they're all in couples. They like have girlfriends and so on and so on. And like they're like chatting to people or whatever. But it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm I, I, it's like they say, you know, broad regional accents like, well, I've been like chatting to oh, I've been like chatting to Lucinda for a couple of days or whatever. Um, and it's my best attempt at like a, a sort of like South London accent. Um, anyway, so they'll do that. And then. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll go to the uh, Casa Amor and then the only way that those six girls can stay on the show is to get one of the guys to cheat on their girlfriends with them and then bring them back to the villa and then the girlfriend's out. But the girls are also Whoa. Are, the girls are also with boys at Casa Amor, new ones. The other six hottest boys that weren't in the original one. And so now everyone's wondering if they're cheating on one another. And then they all get slammed back together and then a bunch of them have to leave and it's a whole new crop of Islanders headed straight for the finish and the largest small amount of money or the smallest <laughs> large amount of money that you could possibly give out in Britain's most... It's Everyone's talking about um, all of these, about the fittest 24 people in Britain all sort of like talking to one another about whether or not they get on and then thinking about whether or not they'll have a little kiss. I... I feel like this is unfair to the rest of the people in Britain, and I feel like they should do Minger Island. <laughs> yeah, it's called or Britain. Like, or just Mingin, Mingin Cove. <laughs> From the producers take of a, Like a Balt, like one of the uh, sort of old Commissal Resort, like the Baltic seashore of Poland. Yes. And uh, just stick them in Mingin Cove. <laughs> We're we're hanging out in Mingan Cove, <laughs> and, and you know, we're we're actually the, the we the bottleman uh, Dan and Riley. We are coming to you live from Mingan Cove. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, also with us uh, is uh, journalist Jay Watts, who I'm afraid also is here with us in Mingan Cove. Yeah, we're all Whoa. stuck in Mingan Cove. Yeah. Um, you know, often on this show. Uh, we we find ourselves focusing on grim topics like Love Island um, actually, or resources. I've, I've, <laughs> resource. I've, I've, I've been enjoying Love Island a great deal this season. <laughs> or resource extraction. Um, these you know these topics uh, that seemingly have no solution. You can't find the edges of them. Uh, Riley and I are frequently asking asking ourselves: Will there ever be a rainbow? Or uh, has the whole country gone insane? 
things like that. But today, I, you know, I wanted to talk about, uh, I wanted to share a little piece of news about triumph over adversity, which is uh, back in 2015, scrappy underdog television channel called FX. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's pretty underground. Um, they had a dream. And that dream was to bring a post-apocalyptic comic book to everyone's screens, big and small. Well, not big, because it's not a movie. Um, oh, not yet. Not yet, not yet. But they're going to bring it to your medium-sized to very small screens. Um, and that comic book series is called Why? The Last Man. So this dream uh, was just faced with hurdle after hurdle. Um, at first, they couldn't get funding. Then the showrunner quit. Then one of the lead actors quit. Then Imogene Poots said she was not interested in being in Why the Last Man. Um, it took years to get this thing off the ground. It was like fucking blood, sweat, tears, and over $100 million worth of venture capital dumped into this thing. Um, and the final hurdle that they had was they needed to shoot some B-roll in a park in Toronto. There's one problem. There were people in the park, people who weren't part of the show. They might have looked like extras from an apocalyptic science fiction series, uh, but they were, in fact, unhoused people. And uh, fortunately, the city of Toronto came up with an elegant solution by bringing in uh, city police and a private security team to clear them out and destroy their belongings. And why the last man shot its final few roles and now the production is wrapped up and we just have to wait six to eight months until it debuts on our screens. Yes. <laughs> and it's going to be, the atmosphere is going to be exactly right as well. It's going to be, it's like, going to be amazing. When we're looking at the establishing shots and when we're looking at interstitial footage, like we're going to really feel that it's the right, we had to be there. It could not have been elsewhere. It had to be there. That's right. That's right. So, after that victory, uh, that, that victory over location shooting problems, um, the following Wednesday, July 21st, Toronto police forcibly cleared uh, more unhoused people from the Lamport Stadium Park and arrested 26 protesters in the process. Uh, these arrests were violent. They were captured on live stream. They were posted to social media. And that prompted a pretty severe instant backlash. Um, the action at Lamport Park uh, was the second action of the week. Uh, the first one was, of course, to make way for Why the Last Man. <laughs> and in June, it was Trinity Bellwood, uh, where where the police also cleared out many unhoused people. So today, we're going to be talking with um, Jay, who was one of the people arrested during the operation. Um, he's the coordinator for the Toronto Association for Peace and Solidarity and a central organizer for the Communist Party of Canada. And my buddy. How are you doing, Hello. Jay? I'm okay. Uh, I'm all right. How are you, guys? Well, uh, my girlfriend has been spoiling Love Island for me because I've been here. Uh, so I'm bad for that reason, but good for others. <laughs> Liam I'm apparently bad. was a total snake to Millie. Oh, my God. Uh, classic Liam. Um, what, that, a codger, that's... what a codger. That, am I using that right? Absolutely. It's perfect. Um, yeah, the, 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 seeing the... I mean, seeing the um, seeing the footage of uh, the sort of um, almost the uh, 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 something vacillating between like um, naked glee and uh, sort of 
I would say, um, grim brutality of those police officers. It just, it's, it, you could hear a lot of, I think, liberal voices saying, this isn't Canada. This should happen elsewhere. <laughs> and it's just, it's these, it's, it is the staring them in the face that no, this is. This is Canada. This is what we do. Yeah. But you were there. You were actually in those actions, um, you know, at being on the other end of those truncheons. Yeah. So um, I guess par- uh, part of it is like the work of the Commies Party. We have neighborhood clubs in Toronto. And this uh, Lamport Stadium happened to be in the like sort of Parkdale area where I am and my club had maybe three or four people who are assigned to work with the encampment support network there. So over the last year and a bit, as these encampments have, have popped up, uh, there's a support network, which provides like, you know, tents, food, uh, access to health, things like that, that the city is really not up for, or, well, the city could be up for, but doesn't want to provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there was a call out, uh, as, as you mentioned, Alexander park was cleared before for the, why the last man? I don't know what I don't know what they're going to be shooting at Lamport Stadium. I'm very excited to see and hear about. Who that. knows, Ben? Maybe yeah. uh, maybe the Canadian version of Love Island, <laughs> Love Camp. Yeah, Love that's camp. right. Uh, it is all at a cottage. So, um, uh, yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah. So, uh, so there was a call about like four o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. We knew that this was going to be one of the, one of the uh, places cleared. And actually there was an attempt earlier. This was on Lamport stadium last year. It was the first, the first of the, of the camps that they tried to clear, but they used city workers only. So right. uh, residents there were able to like resist them enough that uh, they just packed up and went away after, after a couple of hours. Um, so, so since then, obviously you mentioned Alexander park and Trinity Bellwoods, uh, the, cops there's been more police and private security and a bunch of other agencies different types of police that i've never knew even existed in this in this city that got involved um so people were called out uh around four or five to come uh there on 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 behalf of the residents who didn't want to be moved um and understood that what happened this the city basically says that they're going to provide them with housing in trinity bellwoods um a couple of people got housing um, but mm-hmm. thirty for thirty days, mm-hmm. um, or else they're offered a shelter, and the shelters are notoriously unsafe, um, pretty isolating. There's very strict rules about them. Um, this this the safety uh, is well is is you know because of COVID obviously, but also they use the same private security that cleared them out mm-hmm. of their homes to to guard the to guard the shelters as well. Yeah, not good. Yeah, so so based on all of this and based on the work that people have done, the residents there basically wanted to 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 put up some resistance, which is why people were called. Um so I got there around just a bit after 5. Um and the police came shortly thereafter and started setting up a perimeter around uh in Trinity Bellwoods this was used to keep out the press as well. Right. Um so that and that's probably that's that's a big portion of this story that I think is is kind of well was frustrating for me anyways and why i sort of like ran into somewhere knowing it was pretty unsafe because you were you were documenting this like some of your photographs ended up circulating in uh you know like american news media or at least like the american news media twitter sphere kind of kind of on both sides like on the liberal side saying I uh, can't believe this is happening in canada and on the conservative side people zooming in and um 
having these very granular arguments about whether a police officer's boot was on someone's neck or throat or head. Yeah, neck, ear, you know, it was, it was, you gotta like, yeah, I gotta take all the angles on it. So, um, yeah, so, uh, we had been, we'd been notified that basically the police were going to come in. They were going to clear. We knew based on Trinity Bellwoods that there was going to be quite a few of them. Uh, Trinity Bellwoods was I, something like probably all told maybe 300 to 400 police plus corporate security and horses. Um, it was the same with this as well. Uh, they had, you know, buses for cops and stuff like around the neighborhood parked in different areas as well. And just not just at the site. Um, so yeah, so it sort of dragged on a little long. Uh, the police came by notified that we were now trespassing in a public park and so that they were within their mm-hmm. rights to, uh, to get us out of it. They came by and, and people didn't leave. We knew what was happening. Uh, they came by yeah. a second time. So basically it was just a lot of waiting around um uh people people came by to deliver medical supplies and stuff there's some pretty good medics who had experienced stuff with the toronto police before uh who were well supplied which was kind of i think helped a lot of people after this too um so around i guess maybe just after one uh is when the cops the cops came in after a scrum that i had started live streaming with the media where the media was sort of was sort of like vying for access but but guaranteeing that they would stay a little bit further back uh, that they wouldn't right. you know wouldn't get too close um you know all the things that a free press does which is ne- <laughs> negotiate with the police for you know to, to keep themselves safe um yeah. which yeah so i mean that's that's basically when i when i when i decided that i would i was already there and i was going to document what was happening too but it seemed to me that the agreements that the media had made with the police was going to be that they would, you know, start shoot from afar. And knowing the Toronto police and how they act, you know, it's you know, you can have when you have that many police, you can just have a line of cops as they, as somebody else performs an arrest and you know does what we saw, what they did, would choke people, uh, use batons to hit people in the kidneys, like mm-hmm. deliberately uh, break arms, things like that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, like like. Th- how would you contextualize the police action uh, when they were clearing this this park versus Alexandria Park or Trinity Bellwoods? Because to me, it seemed like the violence was amped up. Um, yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, Riley mentioned uh, Glee, and actually, I was thinking gleeful at the same time was like would characterize what the police like gleefully violent earlier on when it was sort of unclear what like you know I had a camera. Um, some other equipment and stuff like that when it was pretty unclear whether I was a protester quote unquote or like with the media or anything like that I was shooting some of the police and they were like actively like you know yelling at me and heckling and stuff one of the mm-hmm. one of the like they're so much that that uh that their main supervisor like had to tell them to like knock it off it was like six o'clock in the morning like six mm-hmm. seven hours before they actually even went in so they're pretty pretty aggressive pretty angry um yeah. and and yeah, definitely. Like I noticed for sure that they actively, uh, actively went after women first. I think in in the in the in the when they started coming at the at the people in the in the encampment. Yeah, I mean, it's the yeah. it, it goes to show, right? Like the the people who the, the 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 people who sort of set talk about like that any kind of thing move towards like police abolition or whatever is some kind of a a dangerous and utopian move that the police are. Are, are are you know so the way they are they're nice they protect people they're helpful blah 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 they, they really these are people who really only interact with the police via like marketing and then american procedural cop dramas like yes. that's all they they have 
I think they almost they see something like this happening, and I think it just it it does it almost doesn't compute with what they know a cop to be, right? Yeah, they it just it just misses, you know, because well, in their minds, an interaction, a fantasy interaction, they consistently have with the police from like a liberal standpoint is someone is in danger and they call the police and that person gets help yeah yeah the the police the police are a thing that let me safely be a hero because i can call them and that makes me a hero (laughs) so yeah i mean this is yeah i just i mean the toronto police are pretty notorious um for most people i think if you're living in the city i mean just even a week before i was walking up to the subway station by my place and saw about 12 cops like on set upon this uh, woman who, who uh, had her child in her arms and was just shrieking in Spanish. None of them spoke Spanish. They're trying to rip them apart. So again, I started live streaming this. I mean, these are things that you just see walking around Toronto, basically, as cops acting like this. It turned out that uh, they had said they were driving by one of them and said that he saw a dead bird in the bag of this woman. And so that's why he stopped and called these other squad cars and they were going to bring her to the hospital, but they had to separate her from her child first. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them spoke Spanish. None of them think thought to call somebody who might be able to speak Spanish to like at least interpret. So yeah. I sat there for a bit until like, until somebody who did speak Spanish was able to like talk and like figure out what was going on. And then it was settled that, okay, we'll just call an ambulance and they'll check it out. But that wasn't the first mm-hmm. thing that they had in the mind. The first thing they had in mind was like separating this woman who did not speak English from her shrieking child, yeah. uh, putting them in two squad cars and taking them who knows where. Well, the, the, and the police response to this too was, was hilarious. Like, uh, you know, as soon as they started cracking skulls, uh, I'd say about half an hour after the Toronto police department tweeted out that, uh, an officer had been sprayed with an unknown substance and was injured. Oh, and no. Then, <laughs> and then, and then, a couple, I, I mean, not even an hour later, someone who was on the scene posted a picture of a doofy looking cop uh, rubbing his eyes and basically saying, this guy sprayed himself with his fucking pepper spray and his, like, his <laughs> cohort were making fun of him. Like, we're basically being like, fucking rookie move, dude. Yeah. So. And a, a lot of, the, actually, a lot of the uh, a lot of the coverage, CP24, which is sort of like the uh, 24-hour news channel here or whatever, the, the initial coverage that they had of it, the first two shots showing it was like violent, you know, set up as violent uh, encampment clearing at Lamport Stadium. The first yeah. two shots was that guy running away from the, the scene, like rubbing his eyes, the cop, followed by like a security guard doing the same and then they repeated it again and then launched into like the panel discussion which is like this is the violence here is like the cop and the corporate security guy there is i think there has been it's been very strange to sort of see the media coverage of this right because the tv tv media coverage of this initially at least was basically like wall-to-wall propaganda but Mm. now i i was sort of well i was looking for some like you know opinion pieces being like actually this is good um, mm-hmm. I had to go as far as the National Post. Yeah, um, you know that 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 the Toronto, that- yeah, that the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, um, and even like Toronto Life, like Toronto Life had some letters to the editor that were basically like, "What if we legalized murder for people who make me scared <laughs> from my house?" Um, Toronto Life did have some quite brutal. Uh, Toronto Life did have some brutal letters to the editor, but again, the the editorial coverage, I think, in no small part due to like them showing like they're being uh, actually shown scenes of police officers like putting their knees on people's necks like 
engaging in this sort of gleeful violence against, you know, citizens who are just quite simply not in the right sort of socioeconomic boxes or whatever. Um, I think there are, I'd say the, the propaganda sort of uh, message discipline seems to have broken down somewhat. Yeah. Would you, would you guys I, yeah. say that's true? Because, yeah, I mean, you're sort of um, not state, province side. As opposed to myself. <laughs> I'm uh, watching Love like, Island over in Britain. I, I think, yeah, Sean McAuliffe from the Toronto Star is sort of more of a liberal kind of guy who's, whose brainwave idea after this was like, well, who should be the new mayor? Not John Tory. It should be Kathleen Wynne, the former <laughs> Ontario liberal <laughs> premier. Like that that would solve all of these, yeah. these issues. That is um, such a small brain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He did. I think he did have a good piece. I think, I th- well, a piece that I think is pretty revealing about about how this is playing out, which was like, look at what's been happening with these enclairments. Like we've lost we've lost trust in the police. Yeah. Uh, for most Just people, now. they've never had trust. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but I think it is indicative of how of how the propaganda just can't like deal with all of this stuff coming out as much as as much as they try and as much as they try to frame it. Um, mm. I mean, I did I did about five or six interviews um, however, one of them came out. Um, I don't know if it's oh, because wow. I work for the Communist Party or yeah. because I also made sure to like shit on media for them butting up with the police. But either way, nothing, nothing really came I out. I don't of like it. that. Oh you're, yeah, you're no. a shadow banned for truth. Yeah. By the way, oh, oh, oh no, I don't think this one can come out either. Sorry, we uh, we're trying to. We're trying to actually get a Suncor Resources sponsorship, so yeah. <laughs> ah, sorry. Ooh, I'm having problems with the line. Bottleman <laughs> needs <Yeah>. loonies. <laughs> <laughs> Look, are you going to give us the loonies? But no, it it does it does seem right. Like again, again, like the the liberal response to this, as you say, is like, well, we need a different mayor. <laughs> yeah. As though, yeah. like again, yeah. these like you know same uh, presumably like Richmond Hill fascists. Uh, with like Punisher tattoos, like with with maple leaf Punisher tattoos, aren't just going to do exactly this same thing again. Exactly. I mean, to your like, you're joking, but uh, somebody posted a photo of these, like, a couple of Toronto cops with fucking matching tattoos, yeah. mm-hmm. matching dagger tattoos. You know, yeah. like, and that's that's something I feel like uh, liberal Canadians. Even if they look at the United States and they, they say, oh, geez, oh, gosh, the police force of the U.S. is just out of control. It's like a, you know, militia or whatever. Like, yeah. I don't I don't that that we cannot escape that here either. It's the same. It's. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that that's something that I think even if there is this idea that, that the Torontonians have quite, you know, again, right just now lost trust in the Toronto police. <laughs> One idea that I think is very hard to dislodge from Canadian heads is, well, at least it's not America. I don't yeah. know. Looks pretty similar to me. <laughs> yeah. And, th- and this coming in the wake of like a full scale propaganda assault about, pr- about police violence in Cuba was pretty funny to me as well. Mm. Like just as an aside. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, that's I posted that on Facebook just as I was going. I was like, all right, I'm going to go down to Lamport Stadium and see what real police violence looks like. Unlike Cuba. <laughs> and so I, and I got a good taste of it so yeah yeah but I guess I guess to talk about this we we got to ask like why why are these camps here like why are they there and why are they growing like why are they getting bigger and bigger I, well I think they've, they've always existed to a certain extent and obviously it was exacerbated by everything that happened with uh with the pandemic 
Um, also that there wasn't, uh, that the eviction ban didn't continue on after the first, which was in place, I think for the first little three months or so. And obviously Toronto is one of the most expensive places to live. Um, and a lot of landlords have taken advantage of the fact that, uh, that they were able to evict people at will basically. So they kind of grew and grew and grew. Um, and I mean, that's, this is the thing too, is that the, the encampments are sort of like the the very visible face of, of unhoused people in Toronto, but there's also a lot of other people living in ravines, um, especially as they've in clear, cleared the encampments out and stuff. Like if these, these people, once they're cleared out, they're not, it's not that they're going into housing. The vast majority of them go somewhere else or try to stay with people they know or go into ravines and things like that. So these have popped up um, basically because too, the, the shelter system was just totally overwhelmed. Uh, it was never very good to begin with anyways. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, it's just, I mean, it's the yeah the decaying state of capitalism in Canada basically <laughs> created this and, and on it goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think the other thing, right, is, and Dan and I have sort of talked about, like, the sort of very particular economics behind Canadian housing, sort of how specific mm-hmm. policy choices with regards to like um, the CMHC in the 1990s, basically just guaranteed a constantly inflating asset, basically guaranteed that Canadian house values were connected to the big money printer in Ottawa. Um, but uh, it, what the other, the other thing that does though, right, is that they, is we have by design created, uh, tied this thing, uh, this, this, we've, by commodifying housing in, in a way that it basically has to grow where the economy doesn't work in value, yep. then what we've done is we've basically guaranteed ourselves a sort of, um, you know, permanent, um, houseless, unhoused, uh, uh, class, a permanent and growing unhoused class until a new policy change comes with, as to how the government, as, how the state treats housing and it, will it stop subsidizing housing values? And no, it won't. And, and uh, yeah, Adam, Adam, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the the last thing though, is that, and if they were going to provide and that, that it's not just on the, on the supply end, it's on the demand end. If they provide dignified, adequate housing for people who are experiencing houselessness in big, valuable cities like Toronto, then that removes some of the, the, some of that removes demand and then also attacks the value of the housing market. And therefore the, the, pulls a card out of the house of cards that is the Canadian economy. Like there Absolutely. is the, the, there is no there is no solution to this problem that is going that that will be dealt with by replacing the mayor. It is far far bigger and it is inevitable and it's inevitably going to get worse without substantive political action. And substantive political action could be as easy as a Toronto mayor unilaterally deciding to provide, like, like in, like in, um, in, in Britain, we basically solved houselessness for the COVID pandemic, if, or not, not all of it, but like quite a bit of it by being like, okay, you're all living in actual, like, not like, uh, not sort of like purpose-built hotels for this. They just housed everybody, mm-hmm. and they've unhoused them again, but th- <laughs> they just did it. You know, it, it it would it would take a politician who would be it would take a political move to basically fix it. And there, then the thing is, as long as you're going to have that paradigm where a necessary thing for life is not just withheld, because again, that's developers don't provide housing; they withhold it. It's the main thing that they do. Um, is 
as long as that's the main paradigm, a sort of a big, this big slice of the economy, then you need to have militarized police because you need to protect that particular status quo. But that particular status quo is moving and the floor of it is always moving up. And so more and more people are going to be put into the into the rough end of it. And that's not sort of that, that, that is simply, I think, something you get from a sober look at what the number at where the numbers have been going for the last 20 years, 30 years. Yeah, that's that's almost a depoliticized view of it. Like, yeah. that's just it's just reality. Yeah, more or less. It's, it's, so it's something that I think you can't if you wonder, like, why are why sort of why police brutality gets sort of um, more, say, aside from the fact that a it's always been like this b it's just more documented but if you're wondering if it's more intense why it might have to be that is the economic force making it more intense is that the scarce good is getting more scarce but the scarce good is no less necessary and it can't stop getting more scarce and it can't get less necessary that these and these unstoppable forces and immovable objects are coming into contact with one another and the way that canada chooses to square the circle is to get a bunch of guys from richmond hill with canadian flag punisher tattoos basically kick the ass of everyone who falls outside of that acceptable boundary and go i mean going back to the the change in mayor thing this ridiculous idea the last uh the last uh, race was against uh, John Tory, who, who won, and uh, Jennifer Keysmat, who was considered ostensibly the progressive uh, choice because she had been a she'd be, she'd worked for the city in a in a like a developer or sorry not a developer but like a planning role, um, knew some of the more left leaning uh, city councilors. Her big idea, but in the sorry, in the meantime, since she left the city, however, had went to work for West Bank Properties, which is a luxury condo developer. Uh, in in Vancouver uh, for a nonprofit set up by the guy who runs that. Amazing. I forget his name. And her big idea to solve this was uh, basically just giving away large amounts of public land to developers if they promise to make a certain amount of affordable housing. And affordable housing in, in, in the definition, the CMHC definition and the Ontario government and City of Toronto definition is at or below market rent. So... So, I mean, that's that's a ridiculous solution. Uh, my I've been in my apartment here for about nine years or so. So my landlord technically could, you know, knock down all six units here that are probably between a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars. Um, you know, build something new, build, build, uh, build 12 new units, uh, say that six of them were put six of them at two thousand or something like that for a one bedroom. And those would be he would be considered making, you know, creating affordable units out of that. Mm. So and get <laughs> yeah. a giant and get a giant amount, you know, like a tax credit from uh, from the city or or a public land if he was going to build something around here, too, as well. So it's a pretty. Yeah, ridiculous and when we talk about the idea of developers being primarily in the business of withholding housing rather than providing mm-hmm. it, then I mean, that's it's by setting and by setting an affordable rent at what can't be afforded by anyone who lives there. That is effectively. Yes, you have built a house, but you're mainly mainly what you're doing is you're withholding it. That's mostly what it is that you're doing. And acting together as a class, you're withholding housing from people in a whole region, right? So it's no surprise that people then stop living, that people stop who live there stop living in the houses because they're all being forcibly withheld from them. Well, I mean, some people have a slightly different view on, on, on this uh, eviction of the homeless camp. And Riley, I thought maybe you could... Uh, Walk us through uh, National Post columnist Adam Jivo. I'm going to pronounce it like the Yugoslavian style, Jivo. Uh-huh. Adam Jivo, uh, who believes that 
Toronto homeless camp eviction is a win for the city's working class. Mm. Jay, you want, might want to pay attention to this. This guy's going to more. I, lo- I love the city's dra- working dra- class. So drop some science about the working class here. Right. So number one, as we all know, uh, the working class is uh, local people. Uh, that's how Marx defined it. Uh, it's people from the area. <laughs> yeah, your local record store owner, the guy who owns the cupcake shop, um, <laughs> my friend who makes beeswax candles, but for witches only. Yeah, so uh, working class uh, it doesn't have a meaning. Uh, it just means decent local hardworking people. Uh, there's no one. It's not defined by any other classes. Sorry, no, sorry. There are two classes. Uh, there's the working class. And then there is the uh, well-meaning but naive bourgeoisie. <laughs> um, and then there are scary people uh, who the working class have to be protected from. But the naive but well-meaning bourgeoisie thinks that uh, the scary people actually are the good guys. But fortunately, the working class have heroes. Um, and so the heroes protect the working class from the scary people, but the naive but well-meaning bourgeoisie wants to take away the power of the heroes to protect the working people from the scary people. And this is all in capital, right? This is all it's volume three, so a lot of people didn't get that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, I mean, of, a lot so- of people forget about Marx outlining uh, the Morlock class. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I mean, you gotta kind of go back, reach back into the Grundry so to under really understand Marx's uh, analysis of the scary people. Um, no, so um, uh, Adam writes, yeah, Toronto's homeless camp eviction a win for the city's working class again, who are just decent, hardworking local people. Um, pro encampment voices, I guess, like the three here. I have mobilized to spin the eviction as an attack on Toronto's poor. Um, yeah, and it, uh, we've we have we've spun it. Uh, it we, spun when you it. saw the, that police like, that police officer like you know um, like choke slam a person, uh, that was spin what you saw. Um, <laughs> but actually, and this is this is I mean this is what makes it a National Post article, right? But actually, the opposite is true. Because <laughs> any conservative, any any conservative op-ed, right? There will be a point in the first ten percent of it where you can be like, if you stopped writing here, you'd kind of be accurate. Like, yes, this was an attack on Toronto's poor. Period. <laughs> End article. <laughs> and done. Ah, another good another good day at the at the article mines, Adam. Time for a well deserved break. Uh, but no, but the opposite is true. This eviction will benefit low-income residents in the neighborhood who, owing to the behavior of predatory encampment dwellers, have been denied access to green space and social services. I have never seen anybody set foot in Lamport Stadium until there was an encampment there. The, the park beside it is, is pretty yeah. isolated. <laughs> um, so I believe he is talking about... I, I think he might be talking about Trinity Bellwoods, but um, nevertheless, he says... The eviction of these encampments is not a war against the poor, it is a victory for them. It is not about gentrification and bourgeois fragility, but rather about having vulnerable citizens having, I'm sorry, excuse me, but rather about vulnerable citizens having the right to safely exist, split infinitive, within their own neighborhoods. Of course, you'll never hear that from encampment voices um, who often inhabit neighborhoods where crime is rarely anything more than an abstraction. So, I mean, it's the it's the, cla- it's the classic thing, right, where you want to sound, you understand that, like, the language of social justice is basically in right now, 
and you want to sound progressive, but you need to advocate for the ability of police to, you know, cave people's skulls in with batons. How do you do that? Um, and it's again, it's it's I've seen a lot of people do it over here. Uh, I'm I'm very happy that it's made it to Canada that you guys get to experience this too, um, which Thank is basically you, that look Black of Cross Harbor, which yes. is <laughs> just basically <laughs> look, buddy. All right, um, it's it's we need the po- is that look the police do a lot of protecting people from crime, they stop it before it happens, all that good stuff, um, and anyone you see them beating. That person was go- with uh, ca- going carrying a big like canvas bag with a dollar sign on it to go steal the meager possessions of some decent local hardworking person. Obviously, obviously, um, blinded by their privilege, activists instead romanticize <laughs> encampment dwellers. But it's easy when other, often poorer people, pay the price. So. The argument here, basically, is that the encampments have stolen the green space. They've stolen mm-hmm. the precious green space from uh, the uh, hardworking local people who are the working class. Um, yeah. And they've been stolen by the scary people. Um, we need to go blow off some steam by getting like a $15 single piece of fish and chips and uh, eating it in the hot sun in Trinity <laughs> Bellwoods while uh, someone's labradoodle takes a shit next to them. Like, <laughs> We need um, it. And I mean, I think like it's the again, number one, it's basically saying, ah, those those uh, those those lazy encampment dwellers, those scary encampment dwellers have stolen your green space. You decent, local, hardworking person as though that's the only interaction going on here. Yeah. We don't ask, why is there so little green space? How come they don't have any? How come those people living in the area don't have any outside space? How come all these people don't have a place to live? Um, and again, uh, Adam is basically like saying, "How can I say, uh, let's get rid of the homeless in a woke way?" Right. That's basically yeah. what this is. Um, and I mean, like, it goes to show like, that the National Post is trying to, you know, um, diversify its. Uh, um, it's a uh, uh, audience to people under the age of 90, um, which is which is very good for them. But uh, he goes on. The notion that encampment evictions are a war on the poor is also patronizing as if all poor people are synonymous with encampment dwellers, as if the working poor just trying to get on in life with some peace don't oh exist. So uh, a- Adam to encampment dwellers, get job. <laughs> I, I mean, love to I love to live in Toronto and I love to clock out of my job at Fabrica Dva where I <laughs> where I make tractor engines all day and all I want to do is just go to the park and drink my kvass in peace. <laughs> and I can't do it because of these Morlocks. <laughs> I mean, Jay, so far, how does this article strike you, right? Well, how do you feel Novel, about the argument I'm, being made? I well, I I guess that's why it took me so long to get down. I was, you know, in the bridal path. It takes a little bit to commute down to Lamport Stadium. So, <laughs> especially, uh, you know, especially in an electric car. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is it, it, the whole. I mean, it's something. It's a form of argumentation that's very common in Britain, where condescension is like the name of the game. But I mean, the whole point. This is the whole point is based of a columnist is just to professionally not understand something so that people can pretend that like that that something is morally ambiguous. 
like the, the job of a columnist is to find a way is they're basically a Judas goat of not getting stuff. Right. Yeah. Where it's yeah. like at, at the, the Judas goat for listeners who don't know is like, we'll lead the other goats into the slaughterhouse, but like walks out unscathed because it thinks the slaughterhouse is safe. The other goats follow it. A columnist's job is to be embarrassingly wrong in public for everyone to see. But then what they've done is lead everybody into ambiguity <laughs> uh, <laughs> and in action. <clears throat> indeed, <clears throat> because what you're basic, you're basically thinking it's the, the, the whole thing is basically a. um. It is a game of three card Monty where the where the uh, where basically like the 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 problem that the problems that are creating these encampment dwellers, it's replaced with, oh, the rich think that the poor should have encampments on their public space. And it's like, yes, they do think that because they like that that's they like that 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 there are so many people who are denied so much housing because that's good for them. They don't like think it because they have some kind of misguided sense of morality. It's, it is this is this is very much a uh, this is a, a, a class argument. It's an economic argument. Yeah, and, it's a physical manifestation of things going well for them. Yes, precisely. Uh, he so says it's, uh, it's not the rich's war on public space. Yeah, <laughs> he says. Uh, <laughs> And besides, the city of Toronto has been offering free rooms, showers, harm reductions, and social services to the evicted dwellers. So it's not even a problem. Yeah. And all of those services are very reachable, accessible, and of pretty high quality, if I understand, and very safe. Well, like Jay, like Jay mentioned before, um, the same people who are helping uh, the people get to these safe places are the same people who will guard them in the safe places. Mm-hmm. The heroes, the yeah. heroes. Yeah, yeah, this is this is Marx like like composition. This is the the composition of capital isn't really about sort of a uh, uh, human labor, physical capital, uh, natural resource, all this. No, 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 no. Uh, it doesn't have that sort of finance layer. None of that. Uh, it's uh, it's 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 four. There are four classes, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> um, right, and I think the other thing, right? We talked a little bit about sort of private security. We talk a little bit about the character of the police forces working here, right? There is, and we talk, I want to go back to that sense of glee, right? The sense of glee, again, that like op-eds like this are, are, their purpose of op-eds like this is to sort of paper over the fact that number one, this is a manifestation of things going well for the wealthy. Number two, that, um, number two, yeah, that the, the private the private militia of of the wealthy sort of to defend in toronto's case expensive housing uh is doing this quite gleefully right and i think that you can't separate the um sort of the politi- the specific geography and the sort of geographies of resentment and the politics of resentment around toronto from the glee which which the police who are often suburban uh go to visit violence upon people downtown that's right. I think I think getting to that point of glee, probably the most thorough coverage of the violence there was uh, in the uh, National Post's uh, scrappy underdog little cousin, the Toronto Sun, <laughs> which 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 was probably had the most uh, the most footage, the most photographs of the violence that was there. Um, not not from, but they weren't shocked by it. They were pretty pretty excited by it. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it is kind of a specific situation in toronto where it's essentially the downtown core is ruled by the gta in a lot of ways like Mm. 
ruled by the exurbs and the suburbs. And when I was doing research for this, I was just going through like private police uh, initiatives in the GTA and Oshawa is spending $100,000 to hire private security for their downtown. Mm-hmm. And not and not only that, like there are like uh, gr- what I would call grassroots initiatives within <laughs> Toronto. So I was reading uh, I was reading in uh, Toronto Life again uh, about a Cabbage Town South resident who started a GoFundMe to hire security guards. Ah, uh, yeah. His name this. is David Sad, and um, <laughs> his this is a good quote from his GoFundMe. Um, he says he wants to hire the security guards, quote, to disrupt illegal activities in our neighborhood by witnessing and alerting police about fentanyl dealers. And fentanyl and dealers are both capitalized. Uh-huh. Um, oh, that's a proper name. That's a guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, he's talking about a band. Uh, suspicious activity, including uh, people casing homes. So he's worried about the robbers from Home Alone. Yes, Basically. he's worried. He's worried about the Morlocks with the big empty sack uh, with the dollar sign on it. Um, drug users partying in quotation marks slash using IV drugs in groups in the alleyway and uh, in the alleys and the parks. Has, has this person uh, ever been outside their house? I don't think so. And you know, like reading more of his bizarre like fantasy tirade, it's. All of it is kind of couched in this liberal rhetoric about care, like the word care and the word safety are sort of used as a shield to defend who's ever saying whatever awful shit they're saying about poor people from any kind of criticism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It sounds like he's squarely in the Quaker tradition of bearing witness, though. That's he just wants some security guards to bear witness to (laughs) what's going on in his neighborhood. (laughs) Yeah, he's, yeah he's, uh, it. he's he wants uh, the um the the war boys from Mad Max to witness him, specifically yeah. to witness him uh of f- f- sort of uh, uh fearfully sort of twitching his curtain, looking at some drug users partying. Uh, yeah. I assume uh, leaving one of uh, Toronto's many fabulous nightclubs at two a.m. for whatever reason. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So uh, the the thing about liberal rhetoric about care and safety, right, is that recently. Um, and, and over, over, over here, uh, there have been a new, they've basically said, Hey, remember that, remember, you know how stop and search policing is like ridiculously racist and the previous PM, um, Theresa May basically like limited when the police could do it. The new, uh, Boris Johnson and Pretty Patel have basically been like, Hey, actually we've decided that the most warm and loving thing you can do is relieve someone of a knife. So in order to love the black community more, we're going to remove all restrictions on stop and search. It was the same thing, the same rhetoric, the same justification. It's, it's all about love, care, warmth, and safety. But again, bringing back basically a well sort of, and again, the, the, these things being sort of uncritically accepted, while sort of allowing for a, a, things both macro and micro that are, you know, uh, disproportionately um, brutal on some of the uh, you know most uh, the people well, least able to uh, uh, absorb that. Patel is kind of an expert on this. She's she used to be like a trot in the Revolutionary Communist Party in the eighties, if I recall correctly. Uh, which which ended up producing uh, Spiked Online, which is like these old ex Trotskyites turned hyper neoconservatives. I, I 
I think you may be thinking of Munira Mirza, and not Pretty Patel. I don't think Pretty Patel was in um was in the uh, RCP. No, she's always been a Tory. Ah, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, there's somebody there too. I think. But... Yeah. Oh no! Tons of people from the RCP joined the Tories. They all like joined through Spike. Like, there's a huge contingent of RCP people who are all up there. Um, but no, uh, uh, Pretty Patel certainly not one of them. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, that's a, a small uh, uh, Britain tangent, but you you get there is always that it it it, it, it I think it goes to show right like that that the the ideology ideology is very flexible. It can be sort of pushed and molded to be that basically the same thing: broken window policing, stop and search, sort of the hiring of but brutal sort of brutal um, um over policing or whatever. It's always happened. It's basically the same. It's just we've found a new way to sell it to sort of um, fearful but uh, fearful but guilty feeling liberals, basically. Yeah. yeah. And the only thing that shocks them out of their complacency is seeing police break the rules uh, because the rules are there to keep everyone safe. Um, and so if they break the rules, we need someone better who's going to come in and enforce the rules better, you know. But uh, I mean... Dan, you've also noticed like this is you could also make a comparison to um, uh, Nanaimo, right? Yeah. Well, you know, Jay is familiar with you're familiar with Vancouver Island. I mean, yep. yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, the uh, specific eldritch contours of uh, of the cursed island. But, you know, we've covered uh, a little bit the the insane housing crisis in, in Nanaimo, British Columbia. And and I think I think you know, people listening to this, I think this is a good thing to keep in your mind when you're thinking about um, this problem as, as not just an isolated event in the metropole, you know, in the imperial core of Toronto, but this is, this is transposed to much, much smaller cities. So Nanaimo right now, it costs about, and I know this because my brother uh, was just looking for a one bedroom place. Uh, he finally found something. Um, one bedroom average cost right now between twelve and thirteen hundred dollars a month. Um, the maximum amount of disability income assistance you can get in British Columbia is one thousand one hundred and thirty three dollars a month. Mm-hmm. So, so already you've got a problem there, right? Yeah. Well, hang on. <laughs> if I know anything about which number is bigger than the other, the I want to, the wrong number is bigger than the other here, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, good. It's the Excellent. wrong one. It's right. the wrong one. So I'm one for one. So the, and the Nimo has this exploding uh, unhoused population. It's been going on for I'd say three or four years now. There was a big tent city downtown by Port Place. Tent city, yeah. Yep, by the mall. Um, to deal with this, the Nimo recently earmarked four hundred thousand dollars for what they call improved security downtown, which is a mix of fencing and private security. So they're not um, they're not using soldiers of Odin like they did in 2018. To, to, <laughs> no, no, they're not. <laughs> they're not. Wait, are you saying some kind of neo-Nazi group has aligned itself to the interests <laughs> of capital and the police? I thought they were the ones who were actually dissenters. Now, I'm going to check what Spike says because I'm pretty sure that's wrong. You're going to have to dig in there. Yeah, yeah. check with the check with BC Proud online. Um, so so the city's been people have been hammering the city on this you know and not in a not in a sort of way 
not not from the position of I have done a structural analysis of these problems and I'm asking my elected officials to address them more in a way of uh, I'm terrified of of the homeless people and I don't want them to steal my stuff or look at me while I'm uh, going to the crystal shop, you know, mm-hmm. and and the city's response to this is uh, they are going to build a 30 million dollar pedestrian causeway to connect the walkway from Departure Bay uh, ferry terminal to the beach. That's where they're allocating their budget. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, if we get the causeway in, it will encourage more people to build more houses raising the aggregate supply of housing and thus lowering the price of rent. Duh. And then that's just going to solve the problem. We just need, (laughs) we just need to put in the causeway and then maybe a couple of big ticket attractions like a roller coaster or a Ferris wheel wheel. or like a big mound. Yeah. You're joking, but that's literally the logic behind this is we're going to pretty we're gonna pretty up the downtown it's gonna Uh attract more people to nanaimo we're gonna build more houses okay um increasing the housing stock Uh uh-huh and then some and then there's a missing page yeah um and then all of the homeless people are housed yeah of course like look basically well look in the simpsons in the in the video where homer moves to cypress about cypress creek right where, you know, like the, the, the homeless guy becomes a mailbox. You no, know, they put the mailbox there and then that caused a house to materialize because the developer decided it was up and coming and he moved in there. <laughs> that's, that's basically what happened. That's um, right. It is, I mean, it is, it is, it is quite, it, it's, it's, it's a theory that won't die because it's useful to, um, uh, because it's, it's basically, it's a theory of solving homelessness that says, the way to solve homelessness is to enrich housing developers. That, that's the core of it. And that if you enrich housing developers enough, they will, in gratitude, build some houses. <laughs> this, but this fox in my hen house sure seems hungry all the time. I'm <laughs> going to leave him some extra food, but I'm not going to lock the door because that would be mean. I better get some more hens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well look if i get hens that the fox really likes then maybe that'll be better well there's a i mean it, it's interesting there's an issue with there's an issue with places like nanaimo and i think you know like jay what you witnessed in toronto is horrifying um you know getting assaulted by the police that uh you know the clearing of so many encampments in such a short period of time and just the inability of the government to deal with it. What's scarier to me is places like Penticton, British Columbia or Nanaimo, or, you know, when this inevitably spreads to other parts of Ontario, which I'm sure it already has. Um, These are cities that Toronto is very wealthy. That's true. Places like Nanaimo do not have the resources to sustain uh these populations they don't have the resources to build even the shitty shelters that toronto has you know Mm -hmm. they don't have they don't have people employed to do uh care work to do check-in they don't have enough people to volunteer to do medical check-ins with people so i i think this countrywide housing crisis is going to hit these medium-sized and small-sized cities even harder 
Yeah, and with more violence too, I think. But luckily, you have an NDP government in BC, so yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah. Well, thank goodness, you know. It's it's. Uh, it's I, I mean, look, they've been in there just long enough that I think they can finally start sorting some things out. You know, yeah. um, that's that's look the NDP. They need to first. They need to get into power, all right. Which means they need to make some compromises, and then once they're in power. They need to make sure that they've got their pension before they start doing any of the stuff, right? Because you don't want them to get out of power. So, you know, just wait 40, 50 years and that's how, that, that's how it works. Come on. Yeah, I, yeah, it's got to be 40 or 50 years. I think the Manitoba NDP was in power for 16 and a half years <laughs> in a row, but they didn't, they, unfortunately, just couldn't crack it. But I think... Yeah. Uh, oh, it's hard to make 20, laws. You know, they take time. We don't have a catchy song like that they do in the U.S. about how a bill becomes a law. Like they don't know. <laughs> a law is like a do. law is like a souffle. It takes a master chef to get it just right. You know, <laughs> sometimes sometimes you're whipping up a new law and you have the best of intentions and you put it in the oven and uh, I don't know, like a cat jumps on the windowsill and it collapses and then you got to start from the beginning again. It's really oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like, have you ever, like, look, it's hard to temper an egg, and they still won't put cooking facilities in the provincial government. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, oh, my. Okay, so so we're coming, I feel like we're coming to the end of this cheery episode. Um, I want to I give everybody a, a little time to make some final points. Riley, you and I were talking earlier today, and you had a you had a very eloquent simple way of uh of of explaining this contradiction housing or police yeah yeah i i think it's it's basically it, it's sort of the short version of what i said earlier right which is um which is if you're going to treat housing as this kind of a commodity then what you're doing is the fun, then the fundamental incentives around housing are to restrict its provi- its provision because its value has to keep rising that means that if you think about housing as not just as a single good, but as like a, a thing that is needed by people, then essentially what has to happen is housing has to be less and less available to more and more people, and this has to happen basically forever, um, because otherwise the essentially the value will stop growing, and the value grows on the basis of what price is paid for it. That price is enabled by debt, um, and but then those at some point. You know, people get out of the ranges for what the banks are willing to tolerate lending to, um, and and again, this has sort of um, knock-on effects throughout the entire city. Again, rental pricing is not coupled completely perfectly with sort of overall house price. A lot of it's also driven by like jobs in the area or whatever. Um, but overall, like th- this just needs to keep growing, and that we've sort of staked our claim that that's what has to happen as a society, which means that in order to just in in order that this doesn't the system doesn't fail then you need a military gang keeping people from going and being in the housing or uh setting up other housing elsewhere that isn't related to this system it's like a tent or whatever um so you either have housing or police you know it's it's you have commodified housing and police or you have decommodified housing and not police it's a sort of simple uh two by one it's a two by two matrix of uh, housing, <laughs> commodified or not, police, yes or not or no. It's not. It, it's it's sort of a a, a takeoff on Peter Frey's, basically. <laughs> and Jay, 
I want to ask you, what can, you know, to, to not end this on, on a grim note, what can we do, you know? What can people listening to this do if they are Canadian? Or if, even if they're not Canadian, because this is happening in America too. Like, we didn't get around to talking about it, but I, I really do believe California is the five-minute uh, view into the future, uh, yeah. uh, like when it comes to property and, and the unhoused. I think there is there is a demand there has to be a political demand raised that is for the building of rent geared to income housing and a large project of it too. Also, I think like building one way to deal with sort of a decline in in uh, in in construction and stuff if you move towards building social housing would be to like use use private constructors and stuff to build social housing. It would help deal with the fact that you know like the construction industry is pretty big related to housing in Canada. Um, so I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's kind of a long and and arduous uh, task to 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 get on to get on top of. I think it's going to probably be about ten or so years before any governments take that seriously. And in the meantime, uh, we're going to see more of these cops running around. So the issue, I guess, is to get in front of them as much as possible to like remove the ability of police to to enact this violence upon people. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm very bleak yeah. about things, but I mean. <laughs> I mean, for me, just it's just a small thing. But like, if you're voting for anything, if you're a voter, if you feel like voting, and you're voting for anything on the municipal, provincial, or federal level, mm-hmm. and that and the person and the people on the ballot don't have housing as like a main plank of their platform, you can disqualify them as a serious candidate mm-hmm. at this point. I think, yeah, and I think also it, it does require people looking into these like sort of developer friendly schemes to build affordable housing which does not does not solve it or, or even make any dent in it at all mm-hmm. um so i think i think looking looking very closely at what people say when they're when they're suggesting that they're going to solve solve the housing crisis by building something like affordable housing which actually just means giving developers a bunch of public land um yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in, is in, the person on the ballot a landlord <laughs> if if yes then do not vote for them uh in in, in britain that resulted in um a, a, a company building uh, a bunch of sort of luxury flats that were only to be occupied as investment, like not for occupation as investments, um, with uh, uh, with with affordable housing that was only uh, about one and a half Can- million Canadian dollars for a two bed, uh, which oh, is nice. affordable. Uh, and but if you if you live in one of the poor flats for one and a half million Canadian dollars, uh, then you're not allowed to use the sky pool that connects two of the other buildings where money lives. <laughs> <laughs> the money, the money that lives in the un- otherwise unoccupied by humans buildings, gets to use the plexiglass pool that connects the two buildings. If you're a hu- if you're a poor human, boo, boo. <laughs> then you don't get to use. And I think ultimately, I think it's if Canada can follow Britain's example and um keep and and if our your developers can keep sort of thinking that they have to do increasingly sort of strange and vaunted experiments in sort of stunt architecture like a um, large swimming pool set between the tops of two high-rises in a notoriously um, treacherous London weather, then maybe the problem will solve itself. (laughs) (laughs) It's coming home, man. Uh, Okay, the World Cup is next year. Don't joke about that. It is coming home. (laughs)
It is coming up. Eventually, it will come home. All the hot, all, the twelve hottest, the the twelve hottest people in England will eventually return from Mallorca, um, and all be tragically killed in a sky pool failure. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think it's about time for me to go to bed, lads. Yeah, yeah, it's time yeah. for someone to go home. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's God. coming home, and the it in this sentence is you. Yeah, I'm coming home back to my house so I can wake <laughs> yeah. up early and watch love. People are tweeting about it so much. I'm having to not be online. It's I'm a sorry. minefield of spoilers out there. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Um, oh, that's all right. Jet- I missed most of them. Although I found out that Toby actually takes uh, the girl he met in Casa Amor back to the villa. So that's big. Shocking. Yeah. That's that's love, huge. Love Gulag. Um, yeah, that's right. If Fifteen landlords are taken for a political re-education in the <laughs> northern part of British Columbia. Yeah, the fifteen hottest landlords. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, but uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is uh, this is this has been um, very, very, very a very interesting uh, discussion, and uh, even if we did, uh, or I did, ruin it with Love Island references. <laughs> No, uh, I think it all it's all part of the great fabric, you know. Yeah, that's what makes that's what makes this show great. Um yep. but Jay, thank you so much for coming to hang out with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh and okay, thanks for coming on. Um don't forget uh Bottleman is uh member supported. Uh that means Jay, we cover have, your ears, capitalism alert. Yeah, we have we have a Patreon, which is also what Mark's talked about. Uh the fifth class podcasters with Patreons. Uh it's seven dollars a month. For a, a second episode every week, and uh, that can be yours in your ears. Uh, to this week, the bonus episode will be all about Canada's um how and why uh Canada continues continues to support the dang old uh, uh, uh war on Yemen by Saudi Arabia. Who would have thought that we would have a hand in uh, look uh, that man, too? Um, people who stick their noses where they don't belong may find what displeases them <laughs> that's right so um if we don't get if we don't get 911 uh between now and then uh we'll see you on the bonus episode in just a short while bye everyone bye folks